0: The following is an encore presentation of Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Vicki returns to broadcast live in studio starting in November. Enjoy today's program. Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives, sharing their expertise and life stories, making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories, making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host. Vicki St. Clair.
1: And welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Well, today we will end the show with nature writer Susan Hand Shetterly. She's written about wildlife and wetlands for more than 30 years. And the journey of her new nonfiction book began in her native Maine, leading her then to Canada, Wales, Japan, the Philippines and beyond. More on that later in the Seaweed Chronicles, A World at the Water's Edge. First, I'm very pleased to have a Conversations Live favorite return today. Dan Millman celebrates the revised 25th anniversary edition of The Life You Were Born to Live. And Dan, uh, for those who are familiar with his work, and I know that many of you are, uh, he's a former world champion gymnast, coach, martial arts teacher, and college professor. He's also the author of 17 books published around the world in 29 languages. And his book, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, was adapted to film in 2006. And today we're talking about The Life You Were Born to Live, A Guide to Finding Your Life Purpose. Dan Millman, welcome.
2: Well, thank you, Vicki. Good to be here with you. My goodness, that introduction makes me sound a little bit like Indiana Jones, but I look nothing <laughs> like Harrison Ford, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> I don't know. There's a, you could say there's a similarity there. <laughs> So, um, well, congratulations, Dan, because this book, uh, the original book, has been out for 25 years and you just uh, revised this. You've updated it for a whole new generation of readers and, of course, those who missed it uh, the first time around. But um, so congratulations on that, first of all, because that's quite an accomplishment.
2: Yeah, Thank you. I was worth the labor, I think, and I'm glad my publisher uh, initiated that.
1: Right, right. So we talked, um, we've talked a couple of times uh, on the show. Um, we've touched very, very briefly on uh, life paths, which this book talks about. Um, so I think we need to begin with a, a, a deeper explanation of what this is all about um, with the premise of the book. Um, the original book described 37 life paths uh, based on a form of numerology. So would you explain to us a little bit more about that?
2: Well, you know, I'll touch upon something I added for the new edition. Um, I had studied many systems of understanding, gaining self-knowledge and, and different uh, uh, mystical and psychological methods from the MMPI, the sort of personality inventory, which is based on Jungian archetypes, uh, to the Enneagram. Many people have heard about those books. I studied that well before any books were published on the subject uh, by reading someone's face to determine their personality, type, and so on. So I've been exposed uh, through my psychology studies and other mystical practices of various methods. But then I met a man I'll call the warrior priest. I won't reveal his real name just now. He has passed away since then. But he uh, had read Way of the Peaceful Warrior*. Uh, it, it had come out several years before we met. And he said, Dan, I think you're going to be helpful to people. So I'm going to do a reading for you. And he sat me down in this place and he changed my life in one hour. He did a reading and told me things about myself that brought my life into focus that had been a bit hazy and crystallized my strengths that I hadn't fully appreciated, uh, some challenges I had that I hadn't addressed. I was sort of stumbling through the dark in, in some ways. And that's when I began teaching after that. I mean, it catalyzed. It changed my family finances, many other things. It had such an impact on me that when I learned somewhat later that he was teaching an advanced training for a small group of people um, on a small island in Hawaii, that he was going to, I said, you mean I can learn to do for other people what you did for me? And he said, yes. Because I asked him at the time, are you a psychic? How can you know this about me? And, he uh, he said, no, I'm not a psychic. He said, I've been trained to know where to look, which fascinated me. So finally, I did learn what I call the life purpose system. He gave a series of lectures, and I only had 20 small pages of notes. But I went home and I started doing readings for, for free, you know, friends and relatives, anybody who would listened, and they were all quite impressed. Yeah, how can you know this stuff, man? And so I began gradually. I internalized the information. Didn't need my notes anymore and started doing readings professionally. And over a period of eight years before, I presumed to teach some psychotherapists and other health professionals um, the rudiments of the system. And then I realized, you know, it's time to write a book on this. And and that's where I wrote uh, The Life You Were Born to Live, the original edition in 1994. And, And you know, people still thought I'd gone off on a numerology tangent. They said, Dan, you wrote Way of the Peaceful Warrior, and you wrote No Ordinary Moments, very practical guide to daily life. Now you're doing numerology? And, and the fact is, I was never particularly that interested in numerology. It seemed a little vague and abstract to me. and I just could not fathom how adding up the numbers of one's date of birth could give valid, reliable, accurate information mm-hmm. about some core issues. But his reading was so powerful for me and all the readings I gave to people around the world for eight years um, convinced me it was it would be a worthwhile book. And, and the rest is history. It's over a million uh, people, well over a million, have read the book. And it was time to do the revision after the year 2000. It was much delayed, but finally right. being able to, to add all 45 life paths. And I added new insights and information that I'd gained in the intervening years. So, that's where the life you were born to live came from. Right. But all these words for your listeners might be less valuable than my mentioning this. Um, if anyone goes to my website, peacefulwarrior.com, and just, they'll see immediately. The first thing they'll see will be uh, a square in it that says a link to a life purpose calculator. And if they click on that, it's free. Just click on it, and they put in their date of birth, day, month, and year of birth they will immediately see their birth number and, more important, um, some key words and also a paragraph or two highlighting a sample or a taste of the in-depth information I provide in the book so they can at least get a glimpse of their own life path and birth number.
1: Right, right. So you mentioned that you uh, before you did this, before you met your mentor, you really had no interest in numerology and, and thought it was a little, you know, out there. Um, I too, very, very big skeptic. Um, you know, if I can't prove it and I can't figure it out, and it's not going to work, I, I, I'm a very big skeptic. Um, but I have mm-hmm. to tell you, I, I went through this and I did, the, uh, I did the test for several people that I know really well that I've known all of my life, and I was like, mm-hmm. whoa, <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> this is really weird, including myself.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. Um,
1: yes. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of numerology out there. How does this differ in in your eyes?
2: What it, makes it differs different? In several ways. Yeah, uh, the best way I can describe it, and the way this this mentor who revealed the system to me, he said, yes, there are. There's Mayan, Hebrew, Chinese, Aztec, Indian systems of numerology, and it, some talk about soul paths, destiny paths, life paths. So many paths, and it becomes confusing. And they say you can change your name and then change your numbers. This is very direct, only what seems um, uh, focused and reliably accurate. Um, and he said, the story he told was, if if you were a Chinese martial arts instructor and you had this group of inner an inner, inner circle of students you taught your most secret techniques to, and then an, an emissary from the from the emperor came and said you must come to the palace and teach the royal family, you might go, you wouldn't refuse, so you go to the palace and you teach, but you don't, you hold back some of the real in-depth stuff, and you reserve that for your closest students. And he said, it's like that. Many numerology systems don't quite get it right. I always found it maybe 40% accurate, but the system he happened to know and and revealed to me and that I refined over those years from those 20 pages of notes. Anybody seen the book? There's a lot more material. Um, It just seems the interpretation, the way of adding the numbers and the interpretation are uh, somehow open some further doors to clarity. Right. And it's all about the the purpose for the book is so we can have more compassion for ourselves and for other people. Even some people's lives seem to be so together. Everyone has their mountain to climb, their mountain path, and we all have our own battles. And, And... so it helped in that process to really, and looking up the birth numbers and the lifetimes of our parents, for example, it was a revelation for me. And our children and uh, significant others, and people we know and mm-hmm. professional colleagues, can lend insight in a very compassionate way to what, what they're dealing with, since we all have our own paths.
1: Right, right. And I, I of course, included my parents when I did this. My father Mm was spot on, (laughs) spot on. Uh, My mother, not so much. But there again, um, you know, the choices we make along the way can can make changes in what we consider our life path. Um, So so I want to we have to take a little quick break and let's do it now so I don't have to interrupt you. Um, because I pulled out some stuff that I was really interested in and want to talk about that when we come back. Um, I'm talking with Dan Millman, uh, author of The Way of Peaceful Warrior, and, of course, we're talking today about the life you were born to live, a guide to finding your life purpose. And we'll learn a little bit more about how this can help. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair.
3: Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at
4: nwpf.org.
0: At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do. But they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in, providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800 800- 495-7617.
1: Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425-269-4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772. Conversations Live with Vicki St.
4: Clair. Inspiring, innovative, and a great place to advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net.
0: Make us part of your daily routine. Alternative Talk 1150.
4: And welcome back, everyone.
1: You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Um, my guest in this segment is Dan Millman. Uh, he's celebrating the revised, updated 25, uh, 25th anniversary edition of The Life You Were Born to Live, uh, his guide to finding your life purpose. Um, Dan, you want to give a little bit more explanation about these 45 life paths, just so we listeners really understand what we're talking about, and then we're going to look a little bit deeper into um, a couple of issues around that.
2: Terrific. Thanks, Vicki. First of all, it probably comes from Pythagoras. He was the founder of geometry, but also a mystic, and he was the first to ask, Do numbers mean something? How is one different from two and three in the human psyche? Um, And so it evolved from there. Now, uh, in in the original version of the book, I had 37 life paths, but after 2000, we have new ones. So this book covers all 45 life paths. And if you divide 45 into the population of the planet, billions of people, you're going to get millions of people working your life path, my life path, and everybody. So are we suggesting, am I suggesting that all these millions of life paths, that their personalities or path is exactly the same? Of course not. Because we each have our own genetic heritage, we have our own individual life experiences, and we may be working our path in a more positive, constructive, mature way, or less so. So that makes for the variety of people, even if they're sharing the same birth number. And the way I put it is, if I were to point to a tree outside, And uh, we could say that tree is unique in that there's not a single tree on the planet with exactly the same angle of every branch and leaf, for example. But I can say things that apply to redwood trees that are different from birches or aspens or oak trees. So in that sense, each of us is unique. Each of our stories, there's not a single story on the planet exactly like ours. But we do share certain patterns, and that's what these life paths are about. They're indicated by a birth number, and each number has certain meanings associated with it. One would be creativity and uh, issues of security. Uh, the number two, if that's in your birth number, it would have to do with with um, uh, cooperation and balance, and it goes on, and expression for threes and, and so on. Um, and so that's where the numbers translate into some meaning. And as I indicated before, anyone can go to my website, click on. A life purpose calculator and get some immediate information it's free whether or not they choose to purchase the book right um so you mentioned your number
1: yeah my number was 2911 and um the 11 has some significance cuz normally you make people add that up to a single digit but um what do you have to say about 2911 i don't mind you can say good and bad it's okay
2: oh sure and and my number is 268 we all have a birth number (laughs) so um well the the two is really about cooperation and you're happiest when feeling in, in a collaboration even now we're collaborating in a sense so there's that you'll feel more on track um and the the importance of balance for the two is um, not either over-cooperating with someone and doing things when they haven't even asked you to do them, for example. You might be familiar with that. Um, and the <laughs> other is going into resentment and under-cooperating because if you keep giving and giving and giving and they're happy to receive, there's an imbalance. if That's all that happens. So that's the two. The nine, um, and they combine, of course, but if, if, talking about each number, there's a certain charisma you have. Nines just have a charisma. Um, it's, it's a presence. Um, there's there's a depth to it, and integrity and wisdom. So you learn integrity. Uh, life doesn't give you a lot of leeway. You you play things straight. Uh, as an example, you teach others and lead by example. That's about the nine, and it can be great wisdom. Though nines can be clueless about how life works at the beginnings of their life, and they have to learn lessons about this is how life works. Uh, now the Two and nine out of to 11, so the, the birth number would be described as 29 slash 11. The 11 is a double one. And so double your pleasure, double your fun. Um, <laughs> one has to, t- <laughs> it has to do with issues with creativity. It doesn't mean you're automatically creative, but you have a drive in that direction in a way, way you need to create. And the double one just doubles that. But it also, for some reason, with that creative energy, there's a kind of insecurity, a need to prove yourself. And that can bring some pressure in life where you just need to prove yourself. And it can lead to achievement. Um, but there's always that feeling of, I've got to show I'm good enough. I'm as good as other people. So anybody dealing with that, they have to take the risk to be different, to make mistakes and so on, to, to bring their creativity to the fore. So the combination, 29-11s are big-hearted people, actually lucky in some ways. Uh, one shouldn't get cocky, but like if there's an auto accident, you tend to walk away without a scratch or, you know, minimal. Um, there's a certain luck because the energy attracts energy. So those are a few things, uh, a few highlights uh, mm-hmm. of the 2911. Um, and again, every birth number has its qualities, its strengths, its challenges. And the most important part of the book, I think, uh, is the section on spiritual laws, um, which actually... Uh, describe an aspect of life that can help overcome the hurdles on any given life path. So for each life path, I, d- I give people uh, several laws that are listed in the book and described clearly. Uh, an example, anybody working two or four in particular, um, patience isn't always their strong suit. But if they are willing and learn to do things in a very careful step-by-step process, like building a house versus a solid foundation and so on, they can accomplish an immense amount, but they don't tend to want to be patient. So that's why the law of process, which I describe in depth, uh, can help anyone to, you know, yeah, And or fives. Fives are here for freedom, which means they, they value vast experience. They like to know about different things and look at life from different angles. Uh, but fives can get scattered uh, and they can defocus their efforts. So what I tell fives is if you're, digging for water you're going to have more success digging one hole 100 feet deep than 10 holes 10 feet deep so that's an example of these reminders um from these spiritual laws and of discipline
1: yes and Um, i i read those in depth and i i was really um as i said i was a little taken aback so um interesting Mm -hmm. stuff um now with some numerology, I, I'm not a numerology expert by any means because, as I said, I've always been very skeptical about it. But sure. But some numero- numerology has, like, favored groups, if you will. With th- with this one, you say um, not so much, that um, th- there's not necessarily a number, if you will, that has a more evolved soul, as you put it.
2: I think people almost make this this up. They mm-hmm. think it sounds good. Uh, in in my understanding of this system and the birth numbers, that there is no better or worse, superior or inferior life path, even though it might feel like it sometimes, one or the other, depending on what people are going through. But really, they're just different. They have different strengths and challenges. Um, much of it depends uh, how someone's life looks. It's not about their birth number. It's about whether they're working those particular dynamics in a more mature, constructive, positive way, or more destructive or negative way. That makes much more difference than which birth number you happen to have. And by the way, if someone does do the life purpose calculator, they'll also see there's a composite number they can do. They can take their significant other, a friend, a relative, any uh, two people, the energy they make together. And that composite number, my wife and I, for example, make a 10 which she doesn't have a one in her birth number, and I don't have a one in mine, but together we make a one and a zero, which stands for spiritual gifts. So again, there's no better or worse. It's not about telling people um, this is compatible or not compatible. Right. It just raises points about what the purpose of that relationship, its strength, just like an individual life path. So right. one can look up that as well at the website. And also, what year they're in. In a nine-year cycle, it proposes that life unfolds in these nine-year repeating cycles. Um, cycle, well, they're, they're cycles. They don't repeat, necessarily, but they go through these nine-year cycles. And it helps us to see where we are in that cycle. Um, it's, like, it's like planting a seed, the creative seed, a one. Then we go through two, working with other people. Three, issues with expression, and so on. Yeah. And, we see where we are. We can't reap the harvest when we're in a four year necessarily. We have to wait till the eight, nine before we begin a new cycle. Mm. So it gives us some patience and wisdom in that way.
1: Right, right. A lot of people I talk with, and I suspect a lot of people you talk with too, Dan, are very unhappy in their work or feel, you know, they've climbed the wrong ladder and it's like, where do I go from here? And um, you say that when somebody asks, can a life purpose system guide me in finding the most suitable career, you say the clearest answer is yes and no.
2: <laughs> well, that's because you pick any career and, and or even a, a sport. I looked at the Olympic teams, several teams. All the people had different birth numbers, mostly. So there wasn't one birth number that made a great athlete. It's what the birth numbers describe is how we will approach the work, whether it's acting, music, sports, Uh, or any given field, people will approach it different ways. So you have a group of accountants. They're all going to approach that a little bit differently, their personality. So it does give us insight, but it does hint at the kinds of work. Two, five, sevens like alone time. They might be good researchers doing isolated work. They might be comfortable with that. If someone else is more gregarious, they want to work more with other people. So it does some guidance in terms of career and work for each life path as you've probably seen in the book. But the key here is self-knowledge. You know, the words were written above the uh, entrance to the the Temple of Delphi um, in the 5th century BC that translated roughly to know thyself. And every spiritual quest, every tradition agrees on that because self-knowledge is key to understanding ourselves, our values, our talents, our interests, our drives. And if we don't know ourselves realistically, we end up making the right choices for the wrong person, the one we thought we were. So this, that's one purpose of the book, so we can get the self-knowledge and make wiser decisions in life, because we really get a better sense of who we are realistically.
1: Right, right. Well, it's fascinating stuff. Um, I just, like I said, uh, did several people that I knew really, really well and was really t- quite taken aback by it. So um, very interesting stuff. Um, you wrote an essay and you said in there, author Jack London once proposed that it takes hard writing to make easy reading. And this yeah. is this is an easy read, even though it's a big book, it's an easy read. What do you want listeners Um, to know, uh, to take away from our conversation today if they heard nothing else?
2: To appreciate their uniqueness, even though they're working with a certain pattern, not to compare ourselves to other people. It's a form of disrespect for who we are. And so to trust our process, but enjoy the path we're on and learn to make the best of it.
1: Yeah, excellent. Thank you, Dan Millman, so much. And I know uh, you encourage listeners to go to peacefulwarrior.com, correct? Y- yes. Yeah. And uh, you can you can check out there what your birth number is. And, um, of course, the book, again, it's the 25th Anniversary Edition, The Life You Were Born to Live, A Guide to Finding Your Life Purpose. Thank you so much, Dan, for being with us. Appreciate it.
2: My pleasure, Vicky.
1: And please stay with us. We'll be right back. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair.
0: Let's see if I... I guess that this just isn't working.
4: Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing, writing it another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicky St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need. Whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClaire.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClaire.com.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you know that capsizing boats and people falling overboard account for over 70% of boating fatalities? 80% of those fatalities occur on boats under 26 feet and on boats with operators who've had no formal boating instruction. 50% of all boating accidents involve alcohol. Be smart this summer, know who you're boating with, wear a Coast Guard approved life jacket and don't drink in boat. This message is brought to you by supporters of Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair and the JMB Group, who wish you safe boating fun. You don't know Knowing your breasts can save your life. Go to knowyourgirls.org
4: for the facts you need on breast health. Brought to you by Susan G. Coleman and
2: the Ad Council. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair.
0: Innovative business leaders know to advertise here. Learn how affordable it is at ConversationsLive.net. Want to hear something different from talk radio? Keep your dial on Alternative Talk 1150. Well,
1: we are joined now by Nature writer Susan Han You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And uh, Susan frequently writes about wildlife and wetlands, and the journey of her new book began in her native Maine. It led her to Canada, Wales, Japan, the Philippines, and beyond. Susan is the author of Settled in the Wild, a collection of essays, several children's books, and the book we're discussing today, Seaweed Chronicles, A World at the Water's Edge. Susan Hanschetterly, Welcome.
3: Oh, thank you for having me. It's nice to
1: be here. My pleasure. I was reading uh, one night when I couldn't sleep. <laughs> I I'd opened my laptop and I was reading BBC uh, on the, on uh, my computer. And I came across this list of the top 10 books you absolutely must read. And yours was number one on there. <laughs> Um, which is which is how I came across your book, Seaweed Chronicles. And um, I just, I have to tell you, I'm so glad uh, I reached out because I just love this book. It is so well written. Um, it reads like a story. It is a nonfiction book. Uh, you did a lot of research for it, but it, it reads like a story. It's beautifully written. So well done. <laughs> Thank
3: you so much. You're very brave because the thing is, I really wrote it for people who were like I was when I started writing it, which was, Um, I wasn't a seaweed advocate. I really knew very little about it, and so it took me five years to write the book, and I was an apprentice of sorts, learning about it. All of a sudden, it became a very deep, complicated book about the interweave of seaweeds, wildlife, and coastal people, and uh, I found it pretty exciting.
1: Yeah. So what what got you interested in writing about seaweed in the first place? You are a nature writer. You've written for a long time about wildlife and wetlands and, right. uh, and articles, and et cetera. Um, but what, what made you want to write about seaweed in the beginning?
3: Well, to be very honest with you, I was planning to write a book of essays. And I was reading the list of essays that I was thinking about writing to my agent. And um, I listed one of them as going out with a woman who's a seaweed harvester and cutting seaweed with her. And my agent said, oh, Susan, just write a whole book about seaweed. And I thought, she's crazy. That's impossible (laughs) because there isn't that much to say about seaweed. But I was dead wrong, and it took me five years to write the book (laughs) because there's so much to say about it. And believe me, I haven't said everything there is to say about it it's almost like an introduction to seaweed
1: well i i can actually believe it um but it, it it's fascinating okay. uh, because i had the same thing where i thought okay well a book about seaweed well you know <laughs> what can you say about <laughs> what can you say about seaweed but it's right. uh, a lot of things it, there's a whole world out there that we just do not know about it so um I guess let's begin with um, where you began your research because you you started in Maine and then that kind of took you many places around the world.
3: Well, to be honest, here's how it was done. Uh, The big challenge was after I uh, wrote a book proposal and started thinking about how to write a book about seaweed, I realized right away it was too big and so how was I going to make a story? Because I really wanted a story that grabbed the reader, that wasn't uh, going to sort of mesmerize them and make them fall asleep and and go everywhere. So this is how I chose to do it, is, um It's anchored here in the Gulf of Maine. And the people who uh, often take up a whole chapter are people who are teaching me about one aspect of seaweed or another. And they are here in the Gulf of Maine. They're biologists, most of them, or they're uh, seaweed harvesters, or they're doing seaweed aquaculture. Uh, and then I didn't go. I didn't go to Wales. I didn't go to the other places in the book. But what I did was I found out from people in Maine who are phycologists, that means seaweed scientists, whom to talk to in other places of the world. And I called and I found out stories and I was told where to go for the research. And so that's how I put the book together.
1: Mm-hmm. And so let's let's begin with what seaweed is, because we've certainly, I you know, um, I was out sailing, uh, well, I've been sailing a few times this summer, and sometimes we've been surrounded uh, by seaweed and it's like, what is going on? But first of all, it's not a plant, which I think many people think it is. It's actually an algae. So can you uh, tell us a little bit more about it, it, what it is, and and why it's important?
3: Um, Well, it is, uh, seaweeds are algae. And there are two kinds of algae that um, it's probably uh, a good way to think about it. One is called microalgae, and that's phytoplankton, and that's the little um, one-celled algae that you see out in the ocean and also in freshwater, and they just blanket areas of the ocean or the Great Lakes or wherever. And then you have seaweeds, and they're anchored usually, not not always, but usually uh, along the shore. And they're macroalgae. And what they are is um, sort of a compilation of all the one-celled animals. Um, I mean, the the one-celled phytoplankton out in the water. In other words, they don't have the sophistication of land plants. Each cell in their bodies takes in uh, sunlight and converts it to food. And um, each cell in their body takes in... The nutrients from salt water and converts that with sunlight into food. So they work differently than land plants. Mm-hmm. And they're important because they shelter a lot of sea life. They feed a lot of sea life, not necessarily sea life eating the seaweeds, but hunting in the seaweeds for other sea life. And then they do rip free in a storm and they do float out into the water, and um, they fertilize uh, great swaths of the water. So they're not just taking care of the inshore, but they also provide nutrients to the uh, deeper water. Right. But you did say when you were sailing, you were surrounded by seaweed?
1: Uh, Yeah, it would just come in, it would get, like, great big floating uh, masses of it.
3: And where, where were you sailing?
1: Um, on the Puget Sound?
3: Well, the problem problem with um, that we're having now along shores all over the world, really, is too much of our um, nutrients, our nitrogen from farming or other systems, um, our septic systems, and stuff like that, are flowing into the oceans. We're not really careful about that. And seaweed will take that in, as they'll take in whatever is in the water. So they take that in, and it makes them grow hugely. And so they can grow too big, and then they can make it hard to sail, and hard to swim, and they can pile up on beaches, and they can actually hurt wildlife such as hawksbill turtles and other forms of life because the babies trying to hatch. Out of the sand and get into the water will be smothered by the seaweed. So right. it's very important for us to make sure that none of our um, heavy nutrient load goes into the ocean. The ocean has enough.
1: <laughs> right. Its, it's really interesting because it's a very fine balance. Because you write in the book that sea otters require this forest uh, of seaweed to survive. And, of course, the right. otters were almost extinct at one point. And yet, right. um, later in the book, you share a story uh, when things go wrong that happened in uh, Brittany when a horse and rider broke through. Um, well, it, this was a, a hot crust had formed. So it's, it's maybe the, the negative side of what's going on. And the horse actually died right. from toxic fumes. So, um, right. so the that that there just shows what a fine balance it is. I think.
3: Well, I, I think you're right, and I think it also shows that uh, two two other things. One is we don't really know very much about our oceans. We're just beginning to find out about them, and one thing, of course, we're finding out is that they're essential to our to our lives um, for many reasons. Not only because they. that phytoplankton and seaweeds give us the oxygen we need to breathe, but obviously they've given us food and many other things. Um, and, And number two, we're finding out now all around the world that if we want wild functioning systems, or you can just say functioning ecosystems, you don't have to say wild. You may not think they're wild anymore because they're certainly altered. Then we have to work to fix them. I mean, that's our choice now. And so many people, for instance, in my book, have chosen to stay here at the coast to work on one aspect of fisheries. A lot of them, most of them I write about are in seaweed harvest of one kind or another, or they're studying seaweeds and finding out how to protect them, what they do, their uses. So yeah, we've got to pay close attention because we've messed
1: up a lot of systems right right well uh, loads more questions for you susan <laughs> we need to take a very quick break uh, so we'll do that now and i don't have to interrupt you uh, my guest is susan hand shetley she is a nature writer and her new book is called seaweed chronicles a world at the water's edge and i'll just leave you with uh, ten, she has a list of 10 surprising things you didn't know about seaweed in in her uh, media kit here And one is that phycologists, the scientists who specialize in seaweeds, estimate there are between 30,000 and a million species of seaweed worldwide. We will be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live.
3: This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to New Pro Supplements, we cover the world of animals. This week, September 29th, it's an encore presentation of Behavior Training and Healing Sunday with me. In this edition, I spent almost the whole show talking about dog fights and covered the basics you need to know, like things to teach your dog, and how to break up and prevent dog fights. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150.
1: Hi, this is Vicky St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425-269-4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772.
0: Looking for unconditional love, an exercise buddy, or a great listener? Pause as the dog or cat of your dreams, just waiting to meet you. We've made thousands of perfect matches since 1967 because everyone needs a warm, safe place to call home. Find out more today at pause.org
3: or call 425-787-2500.
4: Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Ordinary people leading extraordinary lives. Advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net.
0: Easy on the ears, good for the soul. Alternative Talk, 1150.
4: And
1: welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. And we are talking about Seaweed Chronicles, A World at the Water's Edge, written by Susan Hand Shetterly. Uh, She's also the author of Settled in the Wild and has been writing about wildlife and wetlands for about 30 years. And I want to read this quote uh, to you because it's on the book jacket and uh, it's from Mark Kalansky And he says, you might not expect unfettered passion on the topic of seaweed. But Chesley is such a great storyteller that you find yourself following along eagerly. And I had to laugh when I read that because that's exactly what happened with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> so um, one of the things I was surprised to uh, read in here is, um, You know, often we see tar-like material on the beach. I can't tell you how many beach towels I've (laughs) ruined (laughs) from that stuff. Um, And it's actually not tar at all, or it may not be tar. So would you explain that to us?
3: Of course. Um, First of all, it very well may be tar if it's on a beach. Mm. Um, Mm. But what I was talking about is a species of seaweed that grows here in the Gulf of Maine. And it's called, uh, the common name is false Irish moss. And it's a wonderful seaweed. But for a long time, people would see by those beds of seaweed, these little splats of dark, slippery stuff against the rocks. And they would assume that that was some kind of pollution. I assumed it, too. Um, A tar, maybe, that had come From a motorboat or something. But of course, that's not what it was. It was one of the generations of this particular seaweed, and it took phycologists a certain amount of time to figure that out. So, seaweeds do go through different shapes and forms sometimes. They have a sporified phase, a lot of them, and then a gamete phase, which is a sexual uh, phase where they have eggs and sperm but then they also have a, a the spore-like phase. So the sexual one helps them to diversify and to remain genetically strong. But the sporified ones make sure that at least in the ocean, where they have to find each other and settle and start to grow, and it's pretty difficult in the ocean, that they'll at least get a chance to... Um, Uh, live and carry out their life cycle. So the two fit together very neatly, and that uh, black tar-like thing next to the false Irish moss, those splats, uh, are really um, just the sporophyte phase.
1: And so are they indigenous just to that area of Maine then?
3: Well, that's an interesting question. They are indigenous to the North Atlantic, um, my guess is that they may also be on the Irish-English coast,
1: mm, interesting. but I'm not sure. Um, so let's, let's talk about seaweed as food, because a lot of people eat it. You say you're not yes. a seaweed eater. At least that's what you maintain, but it's not precisely true. So what's going on there?
3: Well, what I meant by that is that um, probably all of us today have encountered seaweed in one way or another. Um, And it is in a lot of um, foods. And it's in toothpaste and shampoos and makeup and um, lipsticks. And it's a lot of the processed foods you would get, use it as a binder because it mixes very nicely with, uh, other ingredients and combines them all very smoothly. Um, the thing that I find interesting, other than all these things and also pet foods, is that a lot of RC weed along the main coast is cut for industrial use. It's cut in great quantities and it's dried and ground up and then chipped out to um, Midwestern. Um, industrial farms to grow soybeans and corn and things like that because they've lost their topsoil and our seaweed is then spread over the the um, farm and enriches them. Um, the question is, do you really want to take <laughs> seaweed from the Atlantic and spread it on the farms in the Midwest? Right. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but right. it, it is kind of interesting. One
1: of the characters you talk about in the book, uh, Sarah Redmond, she's a farmer and um, the, the, the takes her boat to her field <laughs> every day. Um, she says e- everybody's talking about food security, but nobody's talking about nutrient security. And she goes on to say people getting the nutri- people aren't getting the nutrients they need and seaweed can do that for them in small quantities by folding it into food that people already eat. So did you actually go out and visit with her?
3: Oh, of course. Yeah, I spent a great deal of time with her. And it was wonderful going out on an aquaculture farm. Um, What she had chosen, um, she now has a different farm, um, a little farther down east. But what she had chosen was this beautiful bay, very deep, cold water, over a mud bottom. Seaweeds usually anchor to the shore, so they need some kind of rock. They don't grow attached to mud. Uh, they don't have a root system. And so she's not uh, shading out any wild seaweeds. That's number one, and that's really great. But So she has this uh, great big square, and she sets her lines, and there's strings with little baby seaweeds that hang down from the lines, and she farms in the winter in Maine, Mm. out on a boat in this bay. Um, (laughs) And she grows beautiful seaweed. I mean, I was saying to you, I mean, in the book and also to you, that I'm not crazy about eating seaweed, but when we were out in that boat and we were pulling up the lines and everybody was tasting the seaweed to see how the crop was, um, it was delicious. And we were eating sugar kelp and aleria and nori and adults, uh, and, and they were delicious, crisp and salty and just wonderful.
1: Mm, that's really eye-opening. I, I didn't realize this was such a, a huge industry, and uh, great that somebody can have their own farm on their, you know, on their own terms there. Um, just a couple of facts here. You say at least 35 countries are involved in seaweed production. Maine is right. becoming the fastest, uh, the largest resource for edible and commercial seaweeds in the United States. And um, there is actually such a thing as the Seaweed Council. And I, I bring this up because we're going through a period right now where so many organizations and groups are being deregulated. And the Seaweed Council actually wanted regu- regulation. Why, how so? Yeah.
3: Well, it's it's very interesting. First of all, you have to think about our history here in the Gulf of Maine. We've lost a lot of fish species. We've we've done our own plundering, and we we're very aware of that history, and it's um it makes us unhappy. So, what those um, independent businesses uh, and the harvesters were trying to do was to set up a system to go to the Department of Marine Resources and ask for rules that would protect the harvest and that would protect their livelihood so that the seaweed was not squandered and so that they could continue to supply good seaweed to make a living. Mm. The thing is that um, I think they were also worried about big big companies coming in here and overpowering them and with a, a bunch of rules in place they have some protection that's
1: that makes sense to me um, so we're right at the end of our segment unfortunately um, but you write at the back of the book I wrote this book to explore the complexity and beauty of a wild inshore system uh, which you believe is a great we owe a great deal um, but the people you learned from have given you more than that um and so um we've only got 30 seconds here but tell us how this journey changed the way you see things
3: oh it totally changed the way i I see things first of all i'm so impressed with how hard they work they they stay here and do the work and it's long hard scientific work or harvesting nothing is easy making a living or studying the shore but they persevere and they love it i mean they love being out in a wild system and also they're trying to protect what's left and that's what we all are going to be getting to have to do it seems
1: to me yes and that's a great note to leave on because we can get involved at a local level uh, on a community basis and you say that's what's making the difference great book superbly well written seaweed chronicles a world at the water's edge we can find out more about susan at com. susan thank you so much for being with us
3: well thank you for having me i enjoyed it
1: and we're right at the end of our segment you can find out us at dot net. we will see you next week thanks for being with us today live well live strong Hi, this is Vicky St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425-269-4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772.